great Scott. Are you a sports fan who loves to have a good laugh? Oh, yeah. Then you're in the right place. I'm going to make him an offer again. Life moves pretty fast. Because men get nervous. They really, men get nervous when you get near the family jewels. They, and by the way, I don't know what guy came up with that name for that part of our anatomy, the family jewels. I mean, it's not like your wife has a beautiful evening gown on. Honey, you going out tonight? Would you like to wear my balls around your neck? <laughs> but it's a sensitive area for us. In baseball, I don't know if you know this or not, in 1871 in baseball, men start wearing the cup to protect the family jewels. In 1971, it became mandatory in baseball to wear a helmet. <laughs> it took men 100 years to realize the brain is important also. Women are always saying, you men couldn't stand the pain of childbirth. You, you men have no idea the pain of childbirth. You couldn't stand that pain. Men could get pregnant. They won't want disability from the moment of conception. Couldn't stand that pain. Women have no idea the pain a man experiences when he gets a good swift kick in the nuts. You know what I'm talking about, guys? Because I have heard women a year after childbirth say, it might be nice to have another baby. Have you ever heard a man say, might be nice to have another good swift kick in the nuts? Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's podcast. This week, I have Tom Dreesen. Tom, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. How about you? Good. I'm doing good. How's uh, your weekend going? Everything is going good. Life is good. Whenever you're on, on this side of the turf, you know, life is good. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm celebrating my 48th year in show business. So I'm, you know, every day is just a blessing to me. This is great, great. Yeah, you've had a great career. I did some research on you, and you've done some amazing things. Well, and as Frank Sinatra used to sing, the best is yet to come. Exactly. Yeah, he's one of my favorite uh, singers. I, uh, Incidentally, for you, for just for your, your listeners and for yourself, that was the very last song that he ever sang on stage is that the best is yet to come. In fact, that's on his tombstone. It says, the best is yet to come, Francis Albert Sinatra. But it was the last song that he ever sang. I was with him that night when he did it, too. Wow. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll talk more about that. Let's start with, um, uh, where are you from? Originally, I'm from a suburb on the south side of Chicago called Harvey, Illinois. It's uh, 147 south of the city. Um, and it's, it's a micro, it was, in those days, it was a microcosm of America to me steel mills and factories and, you know, blue-collar people, hard-working people. Um, I had eight brothers and sisters. We lived in a shack. Um, you know, actually, at one time, five of us slept in one bed. You know, we had no bathtub and no shower and no hot water. It was a rat-infested, roach-infested shack. Uh, and so I shined shoes in taverns. I set pins in bowling alleys. I caddied in the summertime. I sold newspapers on the corner, all of this to help feed my brothers and sisters. And none of this do I regret. I think it's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. And um, so uh, you grew up in Chicago, and did you uh, 
go to school or anything or no i never went to school i just walked the streets and <laughs> yeah you, you hustled the streets <laughs> no i i did go to school I, you know, I, I always say I don't have a degree from academia, but I got a doctorate from the streets. I really did grow up, you know, setting pins in bowling alleys and, and, and working in a pool room and all those kind of things. But uh, uh, I left, I quit high school at 16 and I went into the Navy at 17. The day I turned 17, I joined the Navy and I served four years in the Navy and I served nine months in a Marine Corps unit called NEGDF, Naval Emergency Ground Defense Force. And, uh, uh, you know, but I got a high school diploma from the Navy, and then I came out of the service and I went to junior college nights, studied political science. Yeah. So uh, I, I've noticed that you're a avid Chicago Cubs fan. Oh yeah, and I grew up on the South Side, which is everybody in my neighborhood were White Sox fans, and uh, I you know I was listening to the radio, uh, listening to the Cub games on the radio when I was five years old and six years old, and you know I I didn't realize I was in enemy territory. You know, by the time I turned you know, by the time I was eight years old, I, I realized I was in White Sox neighborhoods. I, at that age, I could take a punch. You know, I had to because everybody around me were avid Sox fans. You know, yeah. and the Cub fan, White Sox fan rivalry is probably a far more intense rivalry than anything in baseball. They always talk about Boston and New York, but you ask anybody that grew up in that area, if you were a Cub fan, you didn't dare go into a White Sox bar on the south side of Chicago. You know, and vice versa. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I'm from Massachusetts, so the Red Sox are my favorite team. But the, actually, the Chicago Cubs are my second favorite team. They're my NL team. Well, you know, there's a similarity between those Correct. two teams. I mean, Boston and, and, and the Cubs. I mean, the, I think that, I've always thought when I went to Boston that it was a microcosm of Chicago as well. You know, it was like the same thing in Chicago. It had Italian neighborhoods and Irish neighborhoods and Polish neighborhoods. And, you know, and, and the, they had, the fans were just really avid fans, you know, great yeah. fans in the Boston area. How did it feel watching the Cubs win the World Series last year? I, I can't even describe to you what it's like because my whole life, like every Cub fan, all we've ever taken was abuse from everybody. We were the butt of all the jokes and, and all that. And, and, you know, Cub fans take it good-naturedly, you know, but we took it. You know, and, and then that day came. I never thought it would come in my lifetime. I prayed that it would, but I never thought it would. And when it happened, you know, I went to three of the games at Wrigley Field, you know, just to be at Wrigley Field in, during a World Series, you know, the last time that had happened was 1945, and they lost. The last time they had won a World Series was 1908, you know. But when they finally clinched it that night, I was speechless. I couldn't. I make my living talking, but I, I was so choked up I couldn't talk. The phone was ringing off the hook from people wanting to call me, and I couldn't pick up the phone because, I, for some reason, I couldn't talk. I just... All I thought about was all those Cub fans I knew all my life that are no longer with us, all the Cub players that I knew that are no longer with us, you know, family members. And, and, and I, it just was, it was an amazing, an amazing moment. Yeah. Did it feel like a dream at first? Yeah, I, I almost couldn't believe it. I mean, I, I just, especially that they almost lost that last game because it took on all of the all of the memories that every Cub fan had of that we had it, we were there and we lost it at the last minute, you know, and I thought here it comes again. Oh no, it can't be, you know, but, but when they pulled it out, Oh, that rain delay, that rain delay in that last game, a lot of people would, would say what Zobrist hit, which was a good hit, all those things. But the truth was, if it wasn't for that rain delay where they had a chance to collect themselves, they probably would have lost that game. Yeah, it was great seeing them win. I rooted for them. 
I mean, it's too bad for the Indians too, because you know they have hi- uh, baseball history too. Absolutely, yeah. And and for me, telling you that I grew up in Harvey, Illinois. Harvey, Illinois was famous for a man at one time. His name was Lou Bedro. He grew up in, in Harvey. He was a great athlete and uh, took his team down to the state championship three years in a row. They won the state championship. Lou Bedro, you know, he later went to the University of Illinois and then. Uh, was a big star there and then went to the Cleveland Indians. And at age 24, he managed and played shortstop. At age 24, he was the shortstop and, and manager, and they managed him to a pennant end to the World Series in 1948. And, uh, and he had, um, you know, he, and that, I think he hit 368 that year wow. and only struck out eight times. He was an extraordinary athlete. And, and, and at age 24, he managed the major league team. So Harvey was known for, for Lou Boudreau. And so if I wasn't rooting for uh, a, a, a National League team, or if I was rooting for an American League team, it would have been Cleveland just for the memory of Lou, you know. Yeah. So it was really kind of a mixed emotion day. The Man Cave Chronicles on Twitter at the MCC Podcast. We'll be right back. Hey guys, Brian Padone here, founder of Quiet Punch. When I'm not listening to the Man Cave Chronicles, you can catch me filming one of my live workouts on quietpunch.com. Check it out today. That's quietpunch.com. Have a question for the Man Cave Chronicles? Tweet them now at the MCC Podcast. So uh, how did you get into stand-up comedy? Purely by accident. I never, ever thought I'd be in show business. It was the furthest thing from my mind, the absolute furthest thing from my mind. You, you, you would have never, nothing I did ever geared me toward that. I came out of the service, and I, uh, you know, struggled on different jobs all over the country. I, I mean, I, I worked construction on a traveling crew, but I also worked on a loading dock. I was a, a teamster, and then I dropped my union card, and I became a, a foreman at a, at a loading dock called Jones Motor Company. I was a bartender. I was a. Uh, I, I just did every kind of odd job. I sold life insurance at one time too, and I wandered aimlessly. And I joined a civic group called the JCs, and they do civic work. They teach. They have great leadership training programs, and they teach you how to serve on a committee, how to chair a committee, how to work within the community, make the community a better place to live, and thereby giving you leadership training. So we, we tackled the problems of the community. One of the problems then, as is now were our youth using drugs. So I wrote a drug, ed- drug education program teaching grade school children the ills of drug abuse with humor. It's a concept I had of getting the kids laughing, playing records, and then planting the seeds of the problems in the community and the problems with drugs. And joining the chapter with uh, at that time was a black man named Tim Reed. And he graduated from Norfolk State College and E.I. DuPont recruited him into Chicago as a marketing rep. He joined the JCs. He heard my proposal, and he said, "I want to work with you on that project." And and as fate would have it, I had a guy. And the next day, that guy canceled, and I called this new member up and said, "Yeah, you want to work with me?" And we went into the classrooms, and the program became number one in 50 states and in 22 foreign countries. JCs use it as a model program how to teach drug education at an elementary school level, and they put it through on all their publications. And one day, we had the kids laughing. After about eight months of the other, one day, a little eighth-grade girl said, you guys are so funny, you ought to become a comedy team. And the thought of a black-white comedy team intrigued us because no one had ever done that before. So we started writing what we thought was material. 
and you know we we raved, wrote for like four months, and then we finally went into a club. There were no comedy clubs in those days, none. So we went into a little jazz club, and we got up and we bombed. The guy let us get up and we bombed. We we talked so fast, just trying to remember our material. So the guy let us come back the next day, and we scored a little bit. And the guy said, "Okay, come back in." So then we started doing it, and uh, we became America's first black and white comedy team. History shows we were the last. We wrote a book a while back called Tim and Tom, an American Comedy in Black and White, and now that book is going to become a movie about what it was like being America's first black and white comedy team. The team split up after six years. Tim went on to become Venus Flytrap on WKRP Cincinnati. He went on, the, on another show called Simon and Simon. He did a lot of sitcoms. He recently was on a show called Sister, Sister. He played the father. And, um, and, and then you know, I went on my own after that, yeah. becoming a stand-up. Um, what, do you tell, what do you tell somebody that comes up to you and tells you that they want to try stand-up for the first time? I, I encourage them. You're a laugh getter. God, I encourage you. I want you to do it. I loved comedians before I ever was one. I never thought I'd be a comedian, but I love comedians. People who make people laugh, and the thought that you could make a living making people laugh overwhelmed me when it first happened. So I encourage everybody. I, I give motivation speeches to universities, to uh, at colleges, and to corporate America on four subjects: perception, visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor. And I give that same motivation speech to comedians around the country. I do it in New York and Philly and L.A. and Chicago. I, I have a, a, a thing for comedians called The Joy of Stand-Up Comedy and How to Get There. And, and then I encourage them that, you know, that, that if you can make people laugh, you know, I encourage them. I, and I, you think about that the insurance companies of America did a survey for eight years around the world of the ten fears of man. Death was fourth. Pain was second. Getting up in front of an audience was the number one fear of mankind. If you can get up in front of an audience, I tell the classes, and, you can, and you're a house painter or you're a doctor or a lawyer, and you can talk about your profession for one hour or anything for one hour, you're in less than 1% of the, less than 100 to 1% of the population of the world. If you can get up and make people laugh for an hour, you're in less than one millionth of 1% of the population of the world. You have a gift, and, and so, you know, and, and your gift is to, to make people healthy because laughter we now know is healing. So how important are comedians to our society? So that's what I tell them. You're important. Do it. If this is your calling, don't let anything get in your way. Yeah. You know, and, and, and let me digress. I, after the team split up, my, my wife left me three times. She hated show business, wanted me out of it. And to take my kids when this happened, I kept working to get them back. You know, I came out here to the West Coast after the team split up, left my wife and kids in Chicago, and I slept in an abandoned car. Not my car. It wasn't an old car. It was an old abandoned car sitting up on blocks. It was an old Nash Rambler where the front seat came down, and I it was slept in there. I hitchhiked up and down Sunset Boulevard begging to work for free every night at the comedy store uh, because I this was my dream. I knew that I could make this a reality if only given the chance, and I worked and I worked and I worked. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed, but my whole life changed after I did my first appearance on the Tonight Show. You know, so I encourage anybody that wants to make people laugh, go for it. It's your dream. It's your time on this planet. Don't let anybody get in the way of that. Yeah. You've had sixty appearances on Tonight Show, correct? Sixty-one. Sixty-one. Yes. Uh, what was your experience on that? It, it's hard to describe. The 
what happens to you on that first appearance. You've you got to remember back in the day, back in 1975, wherever you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh, yeah, you ever been on Johnny Carson? And if you hadn't been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you just weren't a comedian. So that validated you. One appearance on The Tonight Show, Freddie Prince got a sitcom the following day. I did one appearance on The Tonight Show, and the next day, CBS signed me to a development deal. A guy from CBS named Lee Curlin saw that show that night and got me on a, a development deal. I, I, I can't describe to you the pressure that first night, you know, getting on that show. First of all, it took me months and almost a year to get them to even come and look at me. And then when they came to look at me and they finally approved of me, I went to the show three times, got put in makeup, put in my dressing room, ready to go on, went down to the green room, and they ran out of time and they bumped me. They bumped me three times in a row. And on the fourth time, they finally put me on. You know, and that night, the, the pressure was enormous. I was in the, green, in the makeup room, and the, the fourth time I went there, and the producer, Freddie DeCordova, came in the makeup room. He said, I got bad news for you. I said, what? He said, you're going on tonight. <laughs> and you get a lump in your throat the size of a grapefruit. Because 15 to 20 million people watched that show in those days. Not only that, every agent, every manager, every, every promoter, people from Vegas, all over the country watched that show. Uh, producers and casting people. And, and more than that, my mother had everybody back in the old neighborhood watching, so if I bombed, I couldn't even go back home. You know, So you're standing behind that curtain knowing that 15 to 20 million people are going to watch you, and Johnny's about to, introduce, about to introduce you. And all those years, all those struggling years, all that flashes in front of your mind, and this is the moment. This is a moment. If you seize this moment, you know, your whole life is going to change. And, you know, you, you, the music stops because they're in commercial break and Doc Severinsen's playing music and it stops and your heart stops because, you know, you're back live. And you hear Johnny say, we're back now. And I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight because my next guest is making his first appearance on The Tonight Show. <laughs> yeah. And then he says, welcome, please. And he opened a curtain. It's like you're walking into an operating room with bright lights all in your face and... <laughs> You, you hit that mark, you see your mark on the floor, they have a little tape mark that you hit, and you can't see the audience, they're like a shadow, and there's a red light on that camera that's on you, and you start that first joke, and you get a laugh, and then you do the second joke, and it gets a laugh, and then the third joke, oh my God, I got a third laugh, and now the fourth joke, you heard Johnny and Ed McMahon laughing behind you, oh my God, what a feeling, and now you're on a roll, you know, I end up getting like eight to ten applause, and, and uh, finally I... I close with my closing joke, and Johnny, uh, I went through the curtain, and Johnny invited me back out to take another bow, and people cheering and cheering, and my whole life changed. I never stopped working from that day on. How was it meeting Johnny Carson and McMahon? Well, the, the, the thing is that they were icons. I mean, you know, that every comedian, uh, you know, watched those shows because they, they knew how important they were. So you watch Johnny and Ed every night. Now, all of a sudden, you're there. You're there. You know, Ed McMahon came into my dressing room before the show, and he said, remember, have fun, and they'll have fun. And I carried that with me my whole career. Whenever young comedians say, what advice? I say, have fun, and the audience has fun. I don't care what's going on inside you. I don't care what hardships are going on in your life. When you're on that stage, look like you're having fun. And if you are, the audience will have fun. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, was, it was just, and, and Johnny, of course, was a, a kingmaker. I can name you maybe 60 comedians that made it off the Tonight Show, myself included. You know, you can't name me one that that came off the Jay Leno show, or even David Letterman only launched one comedian's career, and that was Jay Leno. Yeah. You know, 
in their defense, television was smaller in, in, in my day. You know, today you've got 800 stations you can watch, you know. Yeah. And you, you were also a frequent guest on The Late Show with David Letterman, right? Yeah, I did over 50 Letterman shows. In fact, he let me host the show when he had the shingles. So uh, whenever I saw him, I said, gee, you don't look so good. You need to take some time off. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. But I, I loved his and he and I started out together, so that's he was my, a good friend. We played racquetball together and jogged together. We we've been buddies since way back in the day, you know. Yeah, he was he. That was one of my favorite late night shows. Was watching Letterman, and I remember you hosting it as well. What um what was the experience hosting the the, the late show? Well, it, it, you know, I I I've hosted shows before, and I knew I could do it, you know. But you're also filling in for an icon, you yeah. know, and so you know if you don't pay if you don't pay it. Uh, some sort of tribute to that, you know. You, you're fooling me. So I walked out, and I and they, they, you know, they said, "And here's your host tonight, your guest host, Tom Dreesen." When I walked out, the first thing I said, "Okay," they were applauding. I said, "Okay, how many of you out there were still hoping Dave might walk out?" Applaud, and of course they all applaud and laugh. I said, "You know, I'm a little bit disappointed myself." You know. <laughs> the Man Cave Chronicles on Twitter at the MCC Podcast. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Josh. If you're looking for a voiceover artist to voice your script for your commercial or podcast and save money for as little as $5, I'll do it for you. I've got over a decade of broadcast experience. Go to Fiverr.com slash Josh McClellan. That's Fiverr.com with two R's slash J-O-S-H-M-C-L-E-L-L-A-N. Have a question for the Man Cave Chronicles? Tweet them now at the MCC Podcast. So, um, how, you opened for Frank Sinatra for 13 years, is that correct? Yeah, almost 14. Yeah. Almost 14. How did Frank Sinatra find out about you? Well, it, what happened was it, it became, uh, being glib at the right time, I, was, I had toured with Sammy Davis Jr. for years, for three years. Then I was touring the nation, you know, I would, uh, Smokey Robinson, Gladys Knight and the Pips, Natalie Cole, um, different artists all, all over the country, Mac Davis, you know. I was touring with Smokey, and we were working at Caesars in Lake Tahoe, and Frank Sinatra was appearing next door at Harris. Um, and, and so after, I was always a big Sinatra fan. When I was a boy shining shoes in the bars, he was on every jukebox and every bar that I shined shoes in. So when one of my, I did my show one night, and I rushed off the stage and went straight over to Harris Hotel. I had called the maitre d' and said that I was coming over, said they saved the spot for me because I wanted to catch Frank's opening, you know. I had seen Frank perform before, and, you know, when he walked out on the stage, he created more excitement walking to the microphone than most people did with their whole act. He, the, the, the audience was so energized when he walked out. So when I, I rushed over there and I was running into the showroom when the vice president of Harris Hotel, a guy, a guy named Holmes Hendrickson, uh, saw me, and I had worked at Harris, you know, with Sammy and different artists, and he saw me, and he was talking to a big heavyset guy with a cigar. He said, Tommy, come here. And I reluctantly went over there because I didn't want to miss Frank's opening. And he said, Tommy, this is Mickey Rudin. Well, I recognized the name. That was Frank Sinatra's lawyer and a very powerful guy in show business. He said, Mickey, this is Tom Dreesen, and I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank Sinatra. And the lawyer got a pained expression on his face like he had heard it a million times. And he winked at the vice president, but I caught the wink. And he said, hey, kid, if I gave you a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 I said, Mr. Rudin, put it this way. If you gave me a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 <laughs> And he started laughing. He said, oh, I like this kid. And a week later, they called me to do one week at the Golden Nugget with Frank uh, in, in Atlantic City. 
And I figured, yeah, I'll go do one week with him. I'll try to get my picture taken with him. I'll hang at Nebby Bar back in Chicago. And, and uh, it turns out that the second night that I was with him, he and his wife Barbara took me out to dinner. And he said, I like your material and I like your style. I'd like you to do a few other dates with me if you're interested. And I didn't say, let me check my calendar. I said, oh, yeah. And it turned into almost 14 years of 45, 50 cities a year and a friendship that I'll treasure till the day I die. I was a pallbearer at his funeral, and I stayed. I um, spoke at his funeral. I stayed at his house five, six times a year, and we became very good friends. That's great. How was it? How was it traveling with him for those years? Well, again, you're used to traveling. You're going on the road, so you, you know you, you get the, in your car, or somebody drives you to the airport, or you know, or you take a cab, or whatever it is. And and now you're traveling with Frank Sinatra, and it's time to go on the road, and, and the limo would pull up in front of your house, and Two big guys would carry all my luggage down. They'd carry me down if I wanted to be carried down. The limo would take me out to the airport to his private jet and pull up, and you know, and uh, they'd load all your luggage and everything, and you'd walk on the jet. And the moment Frank stepped on the jet, the moment he put his foot on the plane, we took off down the runway. All the refueling, all that fueling, all that stuff, that better be done. Instrument check. When Frank arrived, we took off. So the pilot's name was Johnny Spots, <clears throat> and he used to say, let's go, Spots. And we'd take off down the runway. And then we'd land, and squad cars and limousines would rush us to the arena. You know, you'd do the show. Squad cars and limousines would rush you back to the private jet. Immediately, Frank would bolt off the stage. We'd be flying over the venue, and people weren't even in their cars yet. And that's how it was traveling with them, first class all the way. Yeah. What is your favorite story with, for Sinatra? Mm. I mean, there's so many. I do a one-man show now called An Evening of Laughter and Memories of Sinatra. It's a 90-minute show of stand-up comedy and storytelling. I go to a bar after I do stand-up for about 30 minutes, and I go to a bar, and I begin telling stories where pictures come on the screen authenticating the story I'm telling and film of Frank and I together. And uh, so there's a there's 100 stories. But one that one that may exemplify... Um, him that people don't really know I mean they, they heard that he was a generous man you have no idea how benevolent he was but he was but I, he taught me a lot of lessons one night we were coming out of the Waldorf Astoria on our way to do a gig going out the back way because if he went through the front he'd just get mobbed so sneak out the back way there was a limo waiting for us in security so as we were coming out the back door he was heading to the limo, and a woman jumped out of the doorway, and she screamed, Mr. Sinatra, please, Mr. Sinatra, please. And the security grabbed her. And we were getting in the limo, and you could hear her screaming, please, Mr. Sinatra. So he stopped, and he went back, and he said, what is it? She said, please, Mr. Sinatra, my husband is home very ill, and if you'd send an autograph, it would mean the world to him. And he said, sure. And he's signing this autograph. She had a, a, like a little book with a thing and she, he signed this autograph and she says oh what beautiful cufflinks and they were $2,000 cufflinks I know where he got them at he said thank you very much and he signed the autograph and he took the cufflinks off and he handed them to her said give these to your husband she said no 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 I don't want them I was just admiring them he said no I want your husband to have them and we got in the limo and I said Frank that was beautiful but why did you do that he said Tommy if you possess something that you can't give away then you don't possess it it possesses you and I, I, I said, it, it's okay if somebody said, gee, I like your Mercedes-Benz, and, 
and you don't give it to them. But when you're alone in the bathroom and you're shaving, you got to admit to that guy in the mirror, that car owns you because you can't give it away. So, you know, it's a, it's a lesson that I, I never forgot. And he didn't only talk that talk, he walked that talk. You had to be very careful around him. You couldn't say, his friends couldn't say, gee, what a beautiful watch. He'd take it off and give it to you. You, he, you couldn't say, oh, what a beautiful painting. He'd take it off the wall and hand it to you. You had to be very careful around him because material things and money meant absolutely nothing to him. Yeah. You know, he said, you're only using these things, Tommy. The second you die, everything you own belongs to somebody else. So you don't own it. You're only using it. When not. When when Sinatra was sick, you used to visit him all the time, correct? Mm-hmm. I would go to the house and spend time with him and sit. We'd watch. He liked to watch the fights. We'd watch the fights. His dad was a boxer. His father fought under the name of Marty O'Brien in Hoboken, New Jersey. In those days, there was so much prejudice against Italians, you know, uh, that, that Italians fought under Irish names. You know, his father fought under the name of Marty O'Brien. And later, because he had some popularity in the Hoboken area as a fighter, he opened up a saloon called Marty O'Brien's Bar and Grill. And that's where Frank, as a little boy, would sing. There was like a Nickelodeon, a piano roll thing. Um, and Frank would, the sailors would put a nickel in it and give Frank a nickel if he'd sing, and he'd sing songs. You know. Yeah. Um, so you played in Vegas numerous of times. What was your favorite place in Vegas? Well, as a comedian, I mean, first of all, I toured with Sammy Davis. I toured with Smokey. I toured with different artists. I was touring, being in, in Las Vegas with Frank Sinatra, that's really uh, the epitome of show business to me in those days. And, you know, but uh, we were under contract when I was with Frank to seven different hotels in 14 years, you know, two years at each hotel. So I, I performed at, at so many hotels there, Caesars Palace, um, the, the uh, Tropicana, the Riviera, the... MGM Grand, the Valley Grand, the Sands Hotel, the um, uh, uh, Desert Inn. The hotels that I loved the best were the low-ceiling hotels because laughter is sound. It hits the ceiling and comes at you. So the more intimate the room, the better it is for the comedian. That's why I loved the Desert Inn and the Sands Hotel. And even the Riviera had a low ceiling. I loved working those. The Golden Nugget, downtown, uh, Frank, we worked there for a couple of years. I loved that. It was that intimate thing for a comedian conversely i wasn't crazy about mgm grand nor was i crazy about caesar's palace because it had they had high ceilings you know yeah so uh, comedians like the intimacy you know? what is your favorite place ever that you performed probably back in the day it used to be harris and lake tahoe because harris was also an intimate room but also lake tahoe was such a lovely place to be just an incredible incredible place to be you know uh, it's in the winter. It's beautiful for if you're a skier, and I'm not. But I mean, the snow and the beautiful in the summer, the lake there, Lake Tahoe, it's just a, a wonderful place to work. So that used to be my favorite place to work in. Yeah. But almost anywhere with Frank Sinatra was my favorite place to work. He did big arenas, twenty thousand seat arenas. You know, in Hawaii we did a forty thousand thing, forty thousand people outside. You know, uh, an outdoor thing. But you know, it just. When you can get an audience of 20,000 people laughing and you're, you're on a roll with them and they're caught up in your rhythm and your timing and all that, it's just the highest of high. You know, it's just hard to describe. It's such a natural high, you know. Yeah. Um, I forgot where I was going. My next question. You've done, um, who's your favorite comic like right now? Who do you, who do you like listening to? 
Well, I mean, I, to be honest with you, I love them all. I mean, I, 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 I know it sounds like Will Rogers. I never met a man I didn't like, but I never met a comedian I didn't like. I may not like them off stage or made them like me, but on stage, I always found something about them. You know, there's a young comic today named Johnny Sanchez. I just think he's so funny. He cracks me up, uh, Johnny Sanchez. I love watching him work. He's he's got got this great stage presence, and he, and, and uh, I enjoy watching. But I enjoy watching so many comedians. You know, uh, Chris Rock. I really get a, a, you know, I, I love watching Chris Rock work. You know, um, yeah. Dave Chappelle. Oh, you know, he, he breaks me up. You know. Um, there's so many comedians out there. I, I, I try new material out at the Laugh Factory all the time. Whenever I come off the road, and as many years as I've been doing this, I still do this. I'll take my tape recorder and I'll go over to the Laugh Factory and try out new material. So while I'm there, I always watch the new comedians, and there's always somebody coming up that'll just knock your socks off, you know. Yeah. Um. And you've done a lot of charity work, correct, for uh, multiple sclerosis. My sister Darlene had MS. Um, she was 18 months older than me, and, um, and, and when I was a little boy, you know, both my parents were alcoholic. My mom worked in a bar and everything, so my sister ended up watching over us all the time. So she, her, and I were real close. She, I, I can't remember a day in my life that she wasn't there. When I was a little boy, holding my hand across the street, and when I sold newspapers, Darlene sold with me. If I shoveled snow walks for trying to make some money, Darlene would come and, and shovel walks with me. Uh, she'd help me with my paper route, you know. She just always was, was there, you know. Um, and she never complained. She'd go to church six days a week, you know, um, and go to Mass in the morning before school and go on Sunday, you know. And she just was a wonderful human being. I never heard her say a bad thing about anybody. And then she was stricken with multiple sclerosis in her 20s. And, and it uh, took her from a cane to a walker to a wheelchair. So I, I wanted to do something for her. I started running marathons. I called it 26 miles for Darlene. And people would pledge money for every mile I run. And the proceeds would go to research <clears throat> and patient care services and stuff. And so I'd bring in celebrities with me in Chicago, and they'd run part of the way with me. Um, I'd bring in, you know, Frankie Valley and Frankie Avalon and Tony Danza and Smokey Robinson and Eddie Marinero and, and uh, uh, well, I'm, I will leave some people out, but just all these big stars would come in with me and, and uh, run part of the way. Smokey Robinson's the only one who ran all 26 miles with me. Yeah. And, and you're still touring to this day, correct? Oh, yeah, I'm working all the time. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm busy. I do a lot of corporate dates, you know, AT&T, IBM, American Airlines. People like that hire me because I know how to MC, and I can MC and keep a program moving. I know how to keep a, with continuity, how to keep a program moving, and I can do a monologue within the confines of their evening's business, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I, and I do that. Or, or sometimes they hire me just to do stand-up because I can work clean, too. It's hard to find a comedian today that won't offend somebody. So, but I know how to work. I'm doing 61 appearances on The Tonight Show. You had to come up with a new five minutes every time you did The Tonight Show. And it had to be the kind of material that grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, and the kids uh, can laugh at. So I, they hire me a lot, corporate America. And, and, and if I'm not doing that, I, can, I give motivation speeches, as I said earlier. If I'm not doing that, I have my one-man show that I do in theaters, you know, um, called An Evening of Laughter and Memories of Sinatra. Yeah. So I, I do that in theater. So I'm always on the road doing something. And then I act in films sometimes. And, you know, I'm busy, busy. Never mistake activity for achievement, but I'm busy, you know. Yeah. Yeah, you were. Uh, you had a guest spot in Man on the Moon with Jim Carrey, correct? Yeah. And, and um, by the way, I'm now a 
it's funny that Jim and I were just together the other day. I'm I'm um, a consultant on a show called I'm Dying Up Here, a script consultant. It's it's um, based on a book that was written called I'm Dying Up Here about the comedy store strike many years ago. And so the, the uh, Showtime picked it up, and it's a series now. And uh, so I, I, I was in that movie, Man on the Moon, with Jimmy. But I also I did you know a lot of other films, and then I, I, I just did one called Trouble with the Curb with Clint Eastwood. And uh, and so they're getting after me every now and then to do an acting role here, an acting role there. You know, I did some sitcoms and you know WKRP Cincinnati, and I did Facts of Life and you know Murder She Wrote and Columbo and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's good to keep busy, huh? It's, it's the best kept secret in Hollywood that I'm a good actor, <laughs> and I sound like I'm bragging. Forgive me, but but if I got a good director, I can act. I studied acting in Chicago, and I studied acting out here in L.A. And if if you get a good director, like I I, I make choices sometimes that are good, and sometimes you make a bad choice. But if you got a good director, and he can say or she can say. Hey Tom, I'd like you to take it to this level or do this, or you know, I can take good direction too. You know. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you want to tell the listeners before I let you go? Mm, I mean, you know, not, you know, nothing that other than uh, if they want to know where I'm at, just go to tomdreesen.com. You know, D R E E S E N. Everybody spells my name wrong, but it's D S and David R E E S E N. Tomdreesen.com. That's my website. And it has all the information about, you know, where I'm appearing at and stuff like that. I'm on Facebook, of course, and I'm on Twitter, Instagram. You know, my daughter's got me involved in this. <laughs> yeah. and, and so I'm doing all that kind of stuff, you know. Okay. So I, I try to stay in touch with, with fans and people like that. Yeah. I'd like to thank you personally for coming on to my show. It's my pleasure. And tell, tell, here's my advice to everybody out there. Laugh out loud at least 10 times a day that it's been it's years ago we've always known laughter is a psychological deterrent that if you're laughing at a comedian or laughing at something you're not thinking about your problems so it's a psychological deterrent but now UCLA has done research on what happens to the human body when it laughs and they, they showed when you have a hearty laugh that endorphins release from the brain into the bloodstream so after a hearty laugh and you laugh so hard and tears run down your eyes and you go Oh, like that's a sense of well-being comes over because your body has gone through an actual chemical change. So not only is laughter psychologically a deterrent, it's physiologically therapeutic. So uh, comedians then are physicians of the soul, you know, um, you know. And so, but I, I whenever people say, "Have you got any advice?" Yeah, I say, "Laugh out loud ten times a day." Sometimes when I'm home alone, I laugh out loud. I'll look in the mirror and I'll start laughing, you know. Uh, when I was in acting class, they t- we had to learn that we had to try to cry in a scene as well as laugh. You know, but it's it's really healthy for you to find something to laugh at every day. If you can't find anything, just create a laugh out of your body. That's my best advice to you. It's a great advice. Okay, so thank you for coming on. And, uh, I hope I can get you on the show again sometime. Call me anytime. Anytime you want to time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Along and everything started into hum. Still, it's a real good bet. The best is yet to come. Best is yet to come, and babe, won't that be fine? 
You think you've seen the sun, but you ain't seen it shine. Wait till the warm-up's underway. Wait till our lips have met. And wait till you see that sunshine day. You ain't seen nothing yet. The best is yet to come, and babe, won't it be fine? Best is yet to come, come the day you're mine. I'm gonna teach you to fly We've only tasted the wine We're gonna drain the cup dry <laughs> Wait till your charms are ripe For these arms to surround You think you've flown before But baby, you ain't left the ground Sunshine place ain't nothing like it here. The best is yet to come, and babe, won't it be fun? The best is yet to come.